before we start, I want to let you know about this amazing all-in-one podcasting platform called Listener.fm. Listener helps you record, edit, distribute, and monetize your podcast all in one place. With just one click, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others. Check it out at Listener.fm. That's L-I-S-T-M-R.fm. All right, Daniel, let's do this. So... I was super excited for this podcast because I was like, wait, you worked, you might have worked with Peter Thiel and everything. You worked at Thiel Fellowship. Uh, we'll get to that, but let's start with what's your story of getting in, involved in the education and teaching space? Where was your head at when you were 16, 17? Oh, yeah, interesting question. Where was my head at at 16 or 17? At 16 or 17, you know, I was one of these people growing up and I don't know, maybe I'm still somewhat this way where I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I always admired my friends who knew that they wanted to be a teacher or a doctor. Or they just knew like this is the path I'm going down. Um, I was always much more open and sort of curious and, and unsure. And so at 16 or 17, um, I actually remember at 17 applying to colleges and kind of understanding that maybe I would go for the experience, but not exactly knowing like, you know, what would I study there? You know, at 16 or 17, one of my most important things was actually music. And um, hmm. I was a classically trained clarinetist. And that taught me a lot actually about teaching. I had so many different music teachers. Some were really, really amazing and can really make a positive difference. And some were just okay, <laughs> like, you know, and, and you learn a lot that way. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I went to public high school in Massachusetts and, um, I had always liked the idea of teaching since I was a small child, but I had always grown up with people being around me, telling me things like, you know, those who can't teach or that the the profession, um, you know, it doesn't pay well, it's really stressful. So all these people in my life were trying to move me away from that arena and um, what was interesting was when I got, I did go to college um, and it was funny. I remember getting into college and then saying to my mother, you know, gosh, I don't know if I want to go. Like I got the acceptance and then that's when you get to really think about something when the door is open to you, not when you're dreaming mm. about it. And, uh, and I said, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I want to go. And I mean, I think in an instant, she basically said over my dead body, like you're going to school. Like that, that was kind of the end of the conversation. And what she said to me actually, um, in, in earnestness is she said, you know, women fought for you to have this opportunity. Um, and I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm going to school now. The way I think about that now is that yes, women did fight, you know, for me to have that opportunity, but they also fought for me to have a choice. Um, and so it could really be about making the choice to do something or not, not that any one path is a have to. So I was headed down the path of neuropsychology and I realized that I was doing it because other people thought it was a good thing for me to do. My peers were saying, oh, wow, you must be so smart if you're studying neuro. And my family was excited because maybe I would get a doctorate and all this stuff. Hmm. And I had this very early 20s life crisis where I realized that as much as I enjoyed my work, I was doing in neuropsychology and I was probably the youngest intern to work at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in the neurology department and all this stuff. I just didn't love it. I wasn't like waking up every day going, wow, I have to do this today. Like this is this is what I'm called to do. And when I thought about it, um, 
I realized that really teaching was the thing that I loved the most. And so I also realized that since I had already finished mm. my degree, that a great way for me to teach would be to start my own tutoring company. So I started a tutoring company back in 2003, <laughs> a very long time ago at this point. And, uh, and that's when I really started reading up on education in different paradigms. And I started learning about homeschoolers. And I just had this sort of innate sense that learning should sort of come from within and from your own interests. And so I started following that. And like I said, reading some of the greats like John Taylor Gatto and John Holt and Maria Montessori, you read her work and she has such reverence for humans and children. Um, it's just beautiful. I have to reread re her books because she's so positive in, in how she speaks to the human condition. But that's when I really got interested in education. And in fact, it was working with homeschooled students that I just saw the, the very big difference between working with even public or private school, it didn't really matter, versus homeschoolers. When I went to someone who was going to a more, you know, um, typical school, I was there to help with homework and um, get them through some subjects, but maybe they were behind. But when I went to a homeschooler's house, they were so excited. Oh, can you stay longer today? Can, can you stay for three hours instead of one? Can you work with three of the kids? You know, can we do reading and a science experiment and this? And they were just so like vivacious. And um, that was what really taught me, like learning from those homeschool parents, particularly, you know, the moms, um, were just really amazing in how much they followed their children's interests. So that really got me down um, sort of the rabbit hole of working in education, but doing it my own way, um, which I'm really glad it happened that way because otherwise, yeah, I probably would have ended up getting like a teaching credential and worked in a school and probably would have felt like, okay, like I'm going to try to bring what I do here, but you still have to do it in a set way. Whereas as a private tutor, I can work with somebody however is best. Um, and I don't need to worry about if we're sort of meeting a standard. I just, you know, need to make sure that, you know, learning is happening and one-on-one -on -one it's much easier to tell when learning is happening. Right, right. You mentioned about neuropsychology and how you got into it. That's pretty much the story for me as well. Like the reason I chose oh, really? nanotechnology was it's super cool. Like you have quantum physics, you have nanomaterials, nanobiology, like, you know, you can swallow you can swallow a nano uh, pill and hundreds of nanobots mm. come out of it they get into your stomach they attack the cancer cells that's how you cure cancer so like you know super cool applications uh, but yeah pretty much the same story but i want to get back to homeschooling uh, that definitely came yeah. up a lot what do you think is the advantage what do you want to talk say to parents that hey this is the reason why you should uh, do go for homeschooling because I come from India and mm -hmm. I have not come across a single parent who would actually go for homeschooling. It's not even a concept over there. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, what have you seen? What do, what do you think parents miss out on? You know, my, my concept of homeschooling is actually even maybe more broad than the typical definition of homeschooling. I really think any parent that is making a very conscious decision about where their child, in even each individual child, how they're educated. I really consider them in the homeschool bucket because there's many people who, um, you know, aren't able to homeschool themselves or that, you know, I met, I've met a lot of parents who think, oh, I can't, I'm not capable enough of doing it. Now, I don't mm. think that's actually true, but if someone thinks they're not capable of something, 
you know, I can kind of nudge them and say like, oh, just give it a go and try. And there's lots of resources today. Um, but at the same time, sometimes people say, you know, I, I need to find something that works, you know, for our whole family. And so any parent who is saying, okay, here's what, you know, child number one needs real hands-on learning. Child number two is a real book bookworm. Child number three does this. Like I sort of consider them in this like conscious education decision-making bucket. Um, but that said with the, with the, like, with the homeschoolers who are like homeschooling, um, one thing that made them work really well is that a lot of them did co-ops where they would get together with other parents and teach topics together. So it wasn't just one parent or family being responsible for all the topics. It was often different families getting together during the day and saying, oh, okay, I'll teach you know, the uh, language arts lesson today and I'll teach this subject in math today. And you know, I think some of it was kind of made up on the fly, but it was also figuring out like who needs what today. And so a lot of homeschooling is very relationship-based in terms of, um, you know, a people know a lot more about parenting than even when I was working with homeschoolers. Gosh, like, it's almost, yeah, it's been all, it, it's not quite, but it's almost 20 years since yeah. I started working with those groups. And things like attachment parenting, I mean, the homeschoolers knew about it, but nobody else was talking about it. And now today it's like, oh yeah, attachment parenting, everyone knows what that is. Um, so just this idea of teaching based on your relationship to somebody and, and having trust and love be the basis of that, rather than what happens in a lot of school environments, it's, it's about classroom management. You know, mm. teachers, I think, have really good hearts and want the best, but you still have to manage a really big group. Uh, and, and then it becomes about the group rather than the individuals. And so what's really beautiful about independent study or homeschooling is just that intense focus on the individual that's really hard to get anywhere else and what i always tell parents too is that i think homeschooling is tough because it's like this label people take on oh i'm a homeschooler and like hmm. for some people that works really well they're like yeah i'm a homeschooler for other people they're not ready to commit to that like they're like oh i'm gonna try a semester of homeschooling with my child and see how it goes and and sometimes they get into it and they really, really love it. And sometimes they get into it and say, okay, I got to find something else that works for me. So I always tell parents that, um, you know, if you're trying anything that is different educationally, you can try it for an experimental period of like, okay, let's do it for a semester and, uh, you know, and, and see what we think and go from there. Right. That makes sense. Do you think there's a, a good or good foundation that you need to keep in place in order to make sure that okay homeschooling would work because there are different situations like parents might be working like uh, back yeah. home not many uh, women work but over here yep. i see like my aunt over here she's working non-stop and yep. i feel like there's no time for homeschooling their kid because everybody's working yep. so what are the some yeah. good foundations over here yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it, it can definitely be really challenging. And that's where I saw things like co-ops come into play, where people mm. could work together on things instead of being the sole responsible person. I, you know, I worked with homeschooled families who it was, you know, more the father's working, the mother's at home and doing the teaching. Um, but not everybody can do that. And so right. I saw, I saw parents too, who wanted sort of more flexibility in their children's learning. So they would enroll in a charter school that had a flexible program. So they could maybe go to school two days a week and then be doing their self-study the other days of the week and 
you know, maybe go doing a co-op, um, you know, or working with mentors on different things. I think it's, it's one of those things where um, it really does need to work for the whole family. It, it can't, you know, and I've, it's funny, I have three godchildren now and I was talking to my friend who's their mother and it's just about, okay, you know, the, the two youngest are, or sorry, they're, they're five, four and one and the five and the four year old, you know, do different schooling stuff. But sometimes I notice the, the mom, you know, gets overwhelmed with different things. I say, listen, this has to work for your whole family. This isn't just what's about good for the five-year-old because you're an ecosystem, you're a family. And I think it's the same for really any educational choices or homeschoolers of you need to find what works. And, and there's so many different online um, experiences now people can have that didn't exist before. I was actually just meeting with one of the founders of Sora Schools, which is an online high school that really focuses more on sort of project-based entrepreneurial type of young people. Um, and I've known a few students to go through the programs, you know, maybe whose parents um, have a more traditional mindset, but those high schoolers went to their parents and said, hey, I want to try something different. And especially with COVID, I want to try a different type of online school. Um, so I really think it's just about figuring out what's going to work for, for everybody. And one of the things that I'm seeing now actually is that, um, you know, Gen Z and younger generations, they just have this take charge attitude. They're like, I'm going to go learn about it online. I'm going to read books. I'm going to start a project with a friend. They're not going to wait for somebody else to say, oh, you have the knowledge now to build this thing, go do it. They're, they're just going to start experimenting with it now. Um, and I think they're both more resourceful and there are more resources available to them. Definitely. Definitely. I think we are seeing this a lot on Twitter right now. I let the entire Gen oh Z population is now on Twitter. To, yeah. I've been talking to so many like 15 year olds the past few yeah. weeks. I just talked to a 15 year old today who is in Dubai, who's like, yeah, I'm balancing trying to get my startup off the ground with being in school and you know, it's, it's a, it's a, and I'm like, oh my God, that's so crazy. And I remember, you know, when I was working with homeschoolers who were 15, it was like impressive that they were just managing their own homeschool calendar. And now it's yeah. like, oh yeah, I'm doing my school. Plus I'm doing a project or a startup and it's a lot, but, um, you know, people, you know, if they can take it on, they should. Definitely. Definitely. Why not? Uh, you also launched or sort of build your own charter school. Like mm -hmm. what goes behind starting a school of your own? Yeah. So um, myself and my colleague, Christine Kuglin, we were both in a homeschool co-op together. She had started the co-op and I worked as a writing teacher in the co-op, um, which is actually a funny story because she called me one day. I don't even know how she heard about me and she she called and she said, Oh, I hear you teach writing and I'm entrepreneurial. So I was like, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, mostly I taught math, but I was like, I have nothing against writing. I don't see why I couldn't. And, uh, she said, we have this homeschool co-op and we'd love for you to come teach writing at it. You know, I think it was I'm trying to think of it. Was, I don't know. It was at least once a week, if not twice a week for, you know, a matter of months. And I was like, sure, yeah, no, we'll we'll do it. So I taught creative writing in this homeschool co-op for months and really loved how they did things. And we didn't have the language for this at the time, but basically what happened was Christine came to me, and this is about 15 years ago, 
And she said, gosh, you know, I have so, and to the point you were making earlier of like, how do people do this? You know, if, if both parents are working or a single parent, um, we saw that a lot with the co-op where parents would want to be involved, but yeah, maybe it was a single mom or both parents are working and it, it was just too difficult. And so we said, you know, maybe we could scale this. And again, we didn't know, we weren't using like startup words yeah. then, but it was this idea of, could we make something bigger than what we have with the homeschool co-op? And could we make a school that we think has our values that is that works for more people, that can work for people who want to be there part-time, that works for people who want to be there full-time? Um, and that's how we started Innovations Academy. And we, uh, we started writing our school charter in 2006. You have to write this thesis document. At the time, this document was 400 pages. I have no idea how long a charter document has to be now. What I do 4, remember is for, oh, it's pretty, yeah, it's probably like 4,000 now. Yeah. Like I have no <laughs> idea. But I remember when we talked to other charter leaders like San Diego Cooperative in the area, they were like, yeah, our charter was 20 pages. And then I was like, 20 pages? Like our charter is like 400 pages. And so, yeah, it must be gargantuan now. But you have to go to the district and say, hey, we want to open a school here and you have to get it approved. It's a little bit like a Burger King going to a McDonald's and saying, hey, will you qualify us to open next door to you? Um, right. It doesn't make a lot of sense because public and charter, there's a bit of a like there's a feeling from the public sector that charters are competitive, but they are competitive. The whole idea is that um, it's choice and education and people will vote with their feet about where they go. Um, you know, and charters can really only stay open, you know, when they manage themselves academically and fiscally. So it took us, yeah, it took us about, it must have been around a year and a half to write the charter and get it passed through the district. And there's all these different hoops you have to jump through and you have to present to the board and uh, they have to vote on if they're going to, you know, have your school come, come into fruition. And then in uh, 2008, we were approved and we opened the school doors to 160 children the first, you know, that first year. And it was just that idea, again, of relationship-based teaching and really getting to know the students in the classroom. We have a morning meeting every day. Um, we have sort of like a democratic process for resolving conflict in the classroom. And it's, I would say it's even more than democratic. It's, it's more about... Um, you know, it's not about like voting, like it's yeah. not like, you know, voting the way that it works today. Somebody's always unhappy. But when uh, when we're working with our students in the classroom, it's more, hey, what can we do to fully resolve this scenario and make sure everybody's voices here are heard? Um, and we really think that learning can only happen when you feel good in the classroom. You know, we always you know, we used to say that, you know, if uh, if a kindergarten comes to kindergarten and their goldfish died, like if there's not room to talk about that, then how are they supposed to do math and reading? Like, so we always make room for that. And so sometimes in the first year of our school, because children were coming from all over and a lot of them had pretty bad educational experiences other places. I used to say the first year of our school was this like large group therapy session. I mean, I had students who had gone to public school, private school, everything. and they would tell me things like, oh, you know, the teacher didn't think I was doing something right on the playground at my old school. So they made me like tie my shoes together and then walk to class. And everything's wow. very punitive. And yeah, it's very okay. strange. How old were these and kids? So, how old? It was K through eight school. So ages, okay. you know, five 
five through 13 ish. Wow. Okay. Um, right. And so that was another hard part actually was man, um, people had told us, Oh, you should open K through three so you can set culture and norms. But parents kept coming to us and saying, but I have a sixth grader. I have a fifth grader. I have a seventh grader. Oh, can't you just do some combo classes? And we said yes. And so the first year we opened K through eight. And so that meant we sometimes had eighth graders who were, we had one eighth grader who was at a fourth grade reading level. It was like, how are we supposed to get her ready for high school? Like we're gonna do the best we can. Um, but clearly this student had just been kind of like passed on and on and on. Um, we had a lot of older students where that was the case where um, they had kind of lost that love of learning um, mm. just because of the environments they were in. But what was really amazing was that even if they had only been at our school for one year, we would hear feedback from the parents later on. Oh my gosh, my child is doing great in high school because they did that, you know, one year at Innovations Academy that kind of like lit them back on fire in a positive way. So it was really nice to see that we could make that kind of difference in a short amount of time. That's, that's really cool. I wish I yeah, had that. It was, it, was an, it was really neat. And we had students who, um, it was so funny, like they could just feel that the school was different even from just mm. walking in the door. And for example, like I would always call students just you know, or students would call me by my first name. So I was just Danielle. I was not Miss Danielle, not Miss Strachman, right. nothing like that. And um, for so many students like that alone, they were like, wow, this place, there's no hierarchy. Like, it's not that right. I'm you know, better than a student because I'm older or something like that. And we had this one young man who came to the school and um, he came in with his mom and he leaned over to her apparently and said something like, I'm supposed to be here. Like, I had a dream about this place. And this is like, this is the school for me. And he'd been there for like two seconds. Um, yeah. So he could just kind of tell me a different environment. But, um, but yeah, it's been an amazing journey. I've been on the board for the entire time that the school has existed. Um, so, so yeah, it's been a, a very like long-term, um, you know, passion. Yeah. Daniel, the way you're explaining this, this totally sounds, this school sounds to me like a DAO. <laughs> No hierarchy, oh, democratic voting system. <laughs> that's funny. That, you know, that is really interesting. Yeah, we, well, and also, I mean, that's, wow, that's funny. You're really like, hmm, my brain is working on that one. Because we yeah. even had things like, you know, we had a, we have a no, you know, no sort of stupid homework policy of like, we don't do worksheets and all this. And it was just like, we're just deciding as a group sort of what we're doing. Um, you know, there were times sometimes where I think, you know, maybe the opposite of the Dow here would be sometimes we, we had parents who wanted us to do things that we didn't want to do, where they'd be like, well, my child's going to call you Miss Strackman because that's respectful. And I was like, well, <laughs> we don't do that here. And I hear what you're saying, yeah. but, you know, we think that respect is about, you know, being called what you want to be called, which, you know, considering everything that's happened societally in the last 15 years that way, I didn't know how sort of revolutionary that would be of just saying like it's okay that we're on the same name sort of playing field here yeah um but that's funny i i never thought about that with a dow that's great <laughs> food for thought uh but i'm actually mm. curious you mentioned about this one person who was in eighth grade but they had lost the love for learning if you see a child today that you believe mm -hmm. that was just passed on, has no love of learning, they're in eighth grade, what do you, what would you do? How could be, yeah. 
bring them back. Yeah, you know, to me, and I, I saw this a lot when I was do, being a private tutor, because a lot of that was like, you'd go over someone's house and the, the student would answer the door and uh, like, it was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you're here. And like, they weren't upset that I was there, but what they were upset at was that they then needed to do things that they didn't like doing, which was usually mm. homework or projects that didn't feel relevant to them. So generally what I would try to do is take their own interests and map it onto what we were doing um, to try to make it more relevant. And, and even just going to empathy and telling them, yeah, no. I mean, I had one student and this was, gosh, this was, you know, back in probably 2005, who went to a private school whose private school was using worksheets from the 1980s. And like this worksheet had like a, a math problem example with Bruce Springsteen in it. And I was like, what? Like, this is private school homework? Like, they clearly haven't updated this since 1985. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. what's going on? And so sometimes it would just be telling the student, yeah, you know what? You're right. It's okay that you're feeling like crap about what you're doing right now because this is bullshit. Like, you are literally being asked to do bullshit right now. Um, and sometimes I try to talk to the parents about, hey, <laughs> Since you're paying for private school, maybe they should have some updated materials or something or, um, you know, but more often than not, it was really talking to the students and empathizing with them and then trying to figure out where their interests were and map those onto the subjects as well. And just make them understand that, like, their views and their feelings are important. I, I think that that alone is so rare for an adult to do for a child, um, you know, that, that the moment someone says something like you're right i mean children just snap out of it they're like what like what do you mean i'm right because they just they almost never hear that so you uh, were saying cool, with your cool. siblings that exactly. like your aunt so, go to you and say what do i do yeah yeah my aunt would ask me what do i do and i'm like i have no response i the only thing i can think yeah. of is setting good incentives that like you know setting really mm. small incentives that hey do this thing, only then you're going to, to this birthday party. If you don't do it, done. You're not going. So, like, you uh, know, that's the only thing that I could come up with. Yeah. But what would you yeah. say to a parent who has a 12-year-old kid and they are struggling to get their kid to study, to finish the stuff? Mm-hmm. It's a tough one because I don't, I don't believe in coercive methods. I don't believe in things like, oh, well, okay. if you do this, then you get this, like no punishment. There's a great book called Punished by Rewards. Uh, and it's about how we take away people's sort of motivations. But I think what I would do first, if, if someone was sort of having a hard time, you know, studying, I think I would try to understand what the root of it was first before I tried to do anything about it, really sit down with them and have a conversation of what's going on for you right now. Is it that you don't like this subject? Is it something about the teacher? Is it something about the classroom environment? Like what's actually going on here? And like, for example, maybe the student, like I remember certain subjects were taught in the most boring way. I mean, you couldn't get me to like want to pick up a history book if my life depended on it. You know, but if, if someone said like, oh, this is really boring, then as a parent, I might say, okay, yeah, maybe this is being done in like a not super fascinating way, but are there materials I can find where this is done in another way? Now, obviously that takes a lot of time and energy to do, but, um, but I would, I would really first try to figure out like, 
what's what's actually going on and then you know if those answers kind of go unanswered i might ask like well what are you really interested in what do you really want to do if you could be spending your time on anything and so even going away from like all the have tos it's like if they're like i want to set up a dow and i want to do this it's like huh okay interesting <laughs> then the question is can you make their interests somehow relevant to what they need to do in school um that's you know that's always it's always a hard part and i think one of the reasons that parents enjoyed having me come over to work with their children was that it's really hard as a parent to stay um, objective and not just try to force things to happen because every parent wants the best thing for their child and they want them to get good grades and there's just there's like there's a lot of inherent pressure whereas someone else who is external can maybe talk to them more so I guess that it might be another tip is like instead of the parent even having that conversation, is there a trusted uncle, a cousin, an older brother? Is there someone who can have that conversation of like, hey, what's going on for you? Because it, like the parent having that is probably gonna be a loaded question. So actually, I even wonder if you could go back, you know, to some of your um, younger relatives and have that conversation to try to understand what's going on a little bit more. Definitely, definitely. We really dive into this rabbit hole because I personally face that. So I'm curious, like how you thought about it. But all right, this is cool. I will do that. Uh, but let's move on. One day you get a call from the Thiel Fellowship team and that yep. changes the trajectory yeah, and that brings you into the startup world. Exactly. Yeah, no, so let's I... talk about that story. How did you get in touch with the yeah. team? Yeah, so... I had done um, a little bit of work with a woman at the Teal Foundation, Lindy Fishburne, and she called me, gosh, it must have been something like, mm, gosh, maybe it was like September, something like that of 2010. And uh, her exact words to me were, Danielle, the Teal Foundation has lost its mind. Like the, you know, uh, Peter's lost his mind. He's running this program right. and they need you over here. You've got to come run it. And what was funny was I had seen it on the news about Peter launching the Teal Fellowship, but especially from being a charter leader, I was like, who launches a program and doesn't have a, you know, a whole staff like running it and, you know, just doing all this stuff because from running a, charter school you have to have all your ducks in a row and you've got your 400 page document and all this stuff and uh nope sure enough it was peter i was like okay interesting so he had he had launched the program really really quickly um i came on about two weeks later to start working on the design and operations and really like what would this look like and what would things like a finalist round look like and how would we work with these people and it was really fun to do those things because i think that um, I think maybe, um, you know, I don't know what would have happened if somebody else had ended up running it, but like, I cared a lot about us having a really collaborative environment for TL fellows and, um, making the whole experience of the application, something that people would learn from and grow from. And it wasn't just about, are you getting a fellowship? It was like, are you getting something about going through this process in the application? Are you getting something out of coming to our finalist round and meeting other finalists? Um, and at the final, the first finalist round we ever had was really um, magical. We had 40 young people 
from all over the world come in to San Francisco and we had them meet each other and they just kept saying, gosh, I don't get to meet other young people like me who are interested in doing different things, um, who have purpose and drive and a mission and want to do things more so than go to school. And, um, and it was just magic. I mean, it was just the, and, and it was great because people understood that, yes, it is a competition, but the way that we set things up and the way that people were with each other, everything was very collaborative. Um, and those, some, some of those people from that finalist round, round from, you know, almost 12 years ago are still friends today. And so it's been really, really neat to see where things have gone with the program. But yeah, um, that, it was a big learning for me in that program in terms of if you see something that you want to work on and someone else is doing it, contact them because you have no idea what sort of support they might need. Um, I, I had made the assumption of, well, who would launch a program without having a full team to run it? Just because that's, you know, I, I wouldn't do that. But <laughs> but just because right. you do something, doesn't, someone else doesn't do it differently. So when you got there, what was Teal Fellowship until those two weeks? Was it just yeah, an no, idea up so, in the air? Yeah, it was, it was mostly theoretical. Um, I remember when okay. I interviewed with the president of the foundation, I said, what exists right now? And he says, we have an application yeah. online. And I said, okay, do you know what the program is going to look like? And he said, he didn't say no, but he didn't answer the question. And then I asked like, well, do you know what a Teal Fellow looks like? And he kind of like, he kind of hemmed and hawed. And, but to me, this was all good news <laughs> because I didn't want to come in yeah. to like build something that someone else thought of. I wanted to build something in the image that I thought it should be. And so we worked really collaboratively together to build out the program and figure out, okay, well, we have this application. Now here's how we're going to sort applications. And we're going to do things like in the application cycle, we're going to bring in mentors from all over Silicon Valley to read applications. And it was actually funny. We called it an appathon. And, um, but people would get mistaken and think we were building apps for the day. <laughs> but uh, but it's like, no, right. we're reading applications and we're giving young people feedback on what they're doing. Um, and then when we had the, the Teal Fellows with us, it was about building out the program and we worked very collaboratively with them as well to figure out, all right, what does a good Teal retreat look like? And, you know, uh, we have a review process that we would do with people and, you know, what does a good review look like? And so a lot of it was sort of iterative in terms of just having the people involved have a lot of say in terms of how things went. Definitely. I think a lot of people don't know what Teal Fellowship is. So can you give a quick intro about what okay. Teal Fellowship was and is today? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Teal Fellowship is um, a program that gives out a grant to young people. I think now it's 22 and under. Um, when we were there, it was 19 and under who are working on a science or tech project. When I was there, we were working with people who were just getting started when things were very experimental, very theoretical in terms of, of what people wanted to do. We had one young man who wanted to work on asteroid mining and he was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Um, but he actually ended up doing some internships with some, um, some space companies in the Bay, which was rather interesting. Um, yeah, different people had different projects that they wanted to do, but the idea was that we would give people a hundred thousand dollars as a grant instead of going to school for, for two years where we would say, okay, instead of being 100,000 in debt, 
We want you to, you know, get $100,000 to work on what you want to do and see how far you can take it. And the thing that I always said about the fellowship was that it was a two-year program with a 10-year timeline. Um, and, you know, that's really proven out to be true. It's like things like Ethereum that launched out of the Teal, Fel uh, Teal Fellowship or uh, Dylan Field launched Figma, Laura Deming launched the Longevity Fund, Austin Russell uh, Luminar, Ritesh with oil rooms, like all these things took time to build, but the place that they got started was in the Teal Fellowship. And so, um, or at least it, one of the very earliest supporters and was we said, hey, we're going to believe in you and say that you don't have to go to school to do this. You could start working on it now full time. That's that makes sense. Uh, that was the crazy fellowship that everybody came to know about. Uh, what yep. do you think about handing over $100,000 to an 18-year-old kid? And what was the criteria of bringing on these mm -hmm. TEAL fellows? Was it like how crazy that idea is? Like if someone, if a 17-year-old kid says to you that I'm going to do asteroid mining, that is crazy. You don't know how that's going to go. But does that make you confident that I want to invest in them? Yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting process to select Teal Fellows and try to figure out, um, you know, who we wanted to give these opportunities to. Um, part of it was about the idea itself. You know, we especially liked moonshot ideas, um, you know, but we also learned, especially after the first year of the fellowship, that with the first year, it was kind of like what we were telling people was like, have you heard of a marathon? Well, you're going to love running a marathon, even if you've never heard of one before, and we're going to give you the resources to run one. The second year of the program was kind of more like, hey, do you like running marathons and you're already running one? We want to give you money because you've already decided that you're going to run one. And so we found that that was helpful to find people who had kind of already chosen for themselves. Okay, I'm going to start running this marathon. I'm going to start building this nonprofit or this company or doing this research. And the fellowship is really um, a resource to me. It's not the thing that gets me to, um, I'm trying to say, it. it's not the, it's, it's like not exactly where you're starting it. It's like, okay, you're, you're running a little bit and we're saying, okay, hey, we see what you're doing. We see that you're, you know, with Dylan, for example, we saw that he was working to build Figma or with Ritesh, we saw what he was doing to start uh, Oyo and Oyo was originally started as like an Airbnb clone for India, and so he, you know, pivoted a lot and um, had to change mm. things up. But it was really about seeing that these people were going to do what they were doing with or without a fellowship, and then saying, "Okay, right. cool. What would you do with more resources?" Um, and and mm. hearing from them about, "Okay, here's how they'd spend the time. Here's how they'd spend, um, you know, the finances to help them." sort of bootstrap what they were doing. But um, but mission did matter to us in terms of, um, you know, what what types of projects people would work on. But what we also saw was that when people were offered a fellowship, it was such a transformative moment for them. Many of them switched their projects. Like as soon as they got the fellowship for one project, they'd be like, well, I think I should think bigger. Uh, you know, I'm going to do X instead now. It's like with Laura De Deming with the Longevity Fund. Um, we originally thought that she was going to be working on some research, um, you know, probably in someone else's lab and have, by all accounts, maybe a, a more um, easeful experience. But then she came to us after she got the fellowship and she was 16 and she said, listen, I figured it out. The thing that is making longevity 
um, you know, eons away is that there's not enough funding for the work. And so I want to start a venture capital fund to, to fund longevity science. And I remember in that meeting, all of us were nervous. We were like, oh my God, she's like 16, 17 at this point, not even 18. And she wants to start a venture capital fund. And we're the people who say that some ideas just can't wait and go do it and be crazy. Um, and so I guess we should tell that to her too. And so we did. We we're like, okay. And apparently more recently, um, I think she was talking to my colleague, Mike, when she said, oh, I had no idea that you guys were nervous about what I wanted to go do. <laughs> Apparently, we, we put on a really good poker face of just like, oh, cool. Yeah, go out there and do it. Um, but yeah, no, we were we were we were scared. But um, but yeah, overall, it was looking for people who had the aptitude to start building and moving towards something we often looked for aptitude that started at an earlier age of like, oh, I've been interested in this field since I was 12 or 13 or like that sort of deep sort of passion and wanting to do something that was bigger than, than themselves was really important to us. That makes a lot of sense. So you were looking for people who had already started working somehow, somewhere on their idea. They were not just waiting yeah. to become a Thiel fellow, get that money and then do it. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Right. Yep. Makes sense. And with the hundred thousand dollars, was it was that amount given to them right away or was that no. given over years? Yeah, it was over time. I remember when I was interviewing with the president of the foundation, Jonathan, I had asked him at one point, I was like, You're not really gonna give a hundred thousand dollar check to like a young person in one go, right? <laughs> and like and and I don't think he had an answer for it at the time. Um, but, uh, but I was like, we're not doing that. <laughs> like, we're going to give it out in right. quarterly stipends and, you know, if anything goes awry, like, you know, or if someone decides they want to go back to school early, like they shouldn't be able to just keep their Teal Fellowship, um, you know, which was a rarity, but, but yeah, we did it in quarterly payments. And if, and, and if someone wanted to solicit us for an advance, they could, but they usually had to have a pretty good reason for it. Right. Right. Where did you see that people were spending their money? Do you have any examples, recollections of how they were spending all this new uh, money on their existing projects? I'm trying to think. I, I remember a time when we actually said no on an advance, probably the most. One of our people who worked with us was working on robotics and he wanted to buy a robotics arm for $25,000. And I remember... Um, saying to him, I was like, you know, that seems like a really big upfront expense. Like, is there any other way to sort of test what you're doing or be more scrappy about it? And I believe he ended up like borrowing one from someone or renting it or something like that. It's like telling him, no, we're not going to just front the money for this helped a lot. Or actually, I remember Ritesh uh, with some of his funding uh, he had an angel investor who was really mad at him uh, early on in the early days of Oyo because the person wanted their money back like quicker than what would be a normal venture timeline. And Ritesh was like, can, you know, can I get an advance on this payment so I can pay this person back and get them off my back? And we gave him like half of an advance payment. We said, OK, you get half from us. You can go get half from somebody else. And you can pay this person off. And I'm sure that person's pretty, you know, unhappy with, <laughs> with that at this point. That, that was a bad move. 
Um, but you know, overall people mostly spent it on living expenses and food and, um, you know, th there weren't too many, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think if there were any, um, I mean, people would buy components and parts and, you know, things to, to get them going on what they were doing. But we were also very clear that this money is really to support you to sort of be where you need to be doing this. And so we mostly thought of it as for living expenses. That makes sense. That makes sense. But you guys still had that decision that, okay, where you can spend this money or not. Like you still made that um, final decision. The decision was mostly in the Teal Fellows hands as far as, you know, we didn't like, we didn't audit what they spent the money on. And I, I do remember some fellows in the past, I think were upset with other fellows because some people spent some money frivolously. Oh, I got a TV or I got the, it's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like people are, people are going to do different things. Um, but, um, but yeah, we did not sort of audit. I mean, what we were concerned about was, is this person making progress on their project? Um, and that's hmm. what we wanted to see was, okay, are you meeting your milestones? If things are changing, are you communicating about them? Are you building a team around you? Are you starting to think about other sources of capital and funding? That was more important to us than, hey, where did $3,000 go, you know, uh, in Q1? Like that didn't matter to us. That makes sense. So yeah. you were, were you in direct touch with Peter Thiel and also... Did you think that he had some sort of special superpower, special trade that made him such a successful entrepreneur and investor? What do you mm -hmm. think about Peter Thiel working with him? Yeah, I think, I mean, Peter, you know, I did work directly with Peter and Peter is a fascinating person. And I think the special trait that he has that, um, I mean, so few people have is he, um, he, you know, he... I hate to use this phrase because it's so overused now, but he truly is a first principles thinker. He really is someone who thinks from the ground up and he is just so thoughtful. Anytime I, you know, asked a question uh, or heard somebody else ask him a question, he would really think about it and give you this answer like on the spot instead of the canned stuff that people just say. And I used to kind of joke about it in my, uh, to myself of, okay, you could ask Peter what his favorite color is on Monday. And he'll like, oh, okay, well, here's what's going on in the markets. And so my favorite color is blue. And then the next day you could ask Peter, all right, Peter, what's your favorite color? And the next day it's like the same thing. Like, oh, well, here's what's going on today. And so now my favorite color is red. It's like, you know, it was both an amazing quality to watch of his being able to um, just like think very quickly on his feet um, but it also would sometimes be frustrating because, you know, one day you'd be talking about one thing and then a couple months later, your mental model would be saying, oh, Peter's interested in this or that or thinking about this or that. And then he would do a 180 and completely flip. And it's like, oh, wait, okay. He's not like, this is not the same person I talked to a month ago or something like that, or even a week ago. So he's, he's always, uh. He's, he's just always updating his thinking uh, and he's an excellent communicator as well. So I just, I really admire the way that he goes back to basics all the time, um, even on his own assumptions, which is something that I think humans tend to be pretty bad at. 
That's very interesting. Like when you think about people like Peter Thiel, you think that, okay, they think very deeply, they make decisions very quickly, they make uh, quick decisions on things that are reversible, uh, they make slow decisions on things that they know that are irreversible, stuff like that. But yeah, and also, how would you, like, give me a story of first principles thinking. Like, what do you think is one example where you saw him working or like, you know, working out from a first principles uh, perspective? You know, I'm trying to think like the time that's coming up in my mind the most. I mean, in part, even just this idea of coming up with the Till Fellowship of like, okay, let's go mm. back to basics. Like, okay, if people have a hundred thousand in debt, like let's reinvent that. And how would we do that? And the flip is, okay, what if we gave them that money instead? It's like, that was just brilliant thinking in terms of, yeah, let's, let's say something really, really different. And let's, instead of telling people they have to go through school or a program or something, what if we just give them time and say, okay, you know, here's the time for this and what do you want to do? Um, you know, it was interesting in the first year of the fellowship because we were going through the interviews and Peter interviewed some of the people himself. And it was just interesting sometimes because it was hard to glean exactly how he was thinking about something, but he might interview someone and say, gosh, the person just doesn't match my pattern recognition for what I'm looking for. And it was hard because we were trying to ask like, well, what do you mean? Like what, what it like, what, like the essence of something like can you like teach us and he's like nope just doesn't match my pattern recognition i don't know what else to say about it it was like this like sort of deep knowledge about something that he would have later on i interpreted the doesn't match my pattern recognition almost like sort of saying intuition like this doesn't match my intuition for something mm. and that that i could understand more but um but yeah sometimes i remember thinking gosh it would be nice if he could just break down like, well, here's how it works. And th these are all the attributes I'm looking for. And um, he doesn't do that so much. Right. Makes sense. And now yeah. you saw Figma, didn't feel you saw Ritesh Agarwal from Oyo, like growing mm -hmm. from ground up, like when they were kids. Uh, at that mm -hmm. point of time, were you confident that they will be able to, they will be able to pull this off? And Oyo will become what it has become today. Figma will become what it has become today. I mean, honestly, when we started, we were picking people. You know, one of the things that I think is so extraordinary about what um, we were doing with the fellowship and some of the work that we're doing with 1517 now is that young people are used to getting awards for past performance, but they're not used to getting a stipend for what are you going to do in your future? And so that was something really special, I think, for, you know, for all the Teal Fellows, but especially for people like Ritesh, where Ritesh had this vision of, I'm going to build this, you know, I, and he had this drive to build this massive company. Um, but we didn't know, I mean, we, you know, there was no way for us to know if it was going to work. I mean, that's been one of the crazy things is um, for myself and Michael, it's something like, I think it's like one in... I have to do the math again. It's either one in 15 or one in 20 we, people we work with has created a, a, you know, more than billion dollar opportunity. And so we seem to have some good pattern recognition around, okay, this is what this type of person looks like who's going to bring forth something into the world. 
Um, but, but we didn't know it at the time. I mean, we had, um, we had a lot of conviction in that, hey, we think that these people are possible of doing something really great, but we don't know what it's going to look like. Um, you know, I still remember taking Skype calls with Ritesh and he'd be in a in a place, you know, like a room like this, and he'd be fluffing the pillow in the background and oh, I'm making this place look really nice because someone's gonna stay here and you know, and again it was that like Airbnb sort of clone and he had to figure out over time like why that wasn't gonna work and what was gonna work and um, you know, so we just we saw people through a lot of ups and downs. Um, but I think the thing that we just always look for in these people is one, like, do they have a really big mission of what they want to do? But then can they answer the question like, what are you doing on Friday? <laughs> like, how are you going to actually get this started? And people who had that ability to hold a big vision, plus the like, what are you doing right now to start it, tended to have good attributes for actually executing. Um, so yeah, you know, if I could, if I knew that these people were going to do these sorts of things, I would have picked a lot more of them already. Um, you know, but it's, uh, it's just this idea of, Hey, we think this person has the attributes and, and, you know, you used the phrase earlier, why not? Like, why not let them try to do these things? And best case scenario, they build something that impacts many, many, many people and society. Um, and, Otherwise, it's a learning experience, and that's not a bad thing either. Definitely, definitely. Like you got this opportunity to be part of uh, yeah. such a cool project that you grew and had impact that you didn't imagine. So that's super cool. Uh, now, from Team Fellowship, you went and started fifteen seventeen. How yeah. was it for you to like you know go from this mindset of being a teacher to being in a mindset of VC and thinking you about know, investing? Yeah. Yeah, you know, with 1517, we started 1517 about seven years ago and we took it to Peter and we said, hey, Peter, we want to, you know, we want to do like Fellowship 2.0 and leave the foundation and start this venture fund. And at first we thought he was going to be upset with us. We thought he was going to be, you know, like mad that we wanted to leave the foundation or something. And instead he was thrilled. He was very excited and said, how much are you raising? And we thought, oh, we'll probably raise 10 million. And he says, you should raise 15 and count me in for three. And we were like, what? Like, oh my God, I guess we're really starting a venture fund. Um, but you know, it's interesting. The work, it sometimes the wor work reminds me so much of my private tutoring days because you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody. You're trying to help them troubleshoot what they're going through. You're trying to get them to think in a different way because, you know, oftentimes when you're talking to someone else, you know, part of it's an update. Sometimes it's when you're stuck on something you need someone to just kind of recontextualize something for you and say, well, what if you thought about it this way? Or like, hey, let's take a 10,000 foot view here and what, what do you see now? And so I feel like there's actually a lot from teaching and education that comes into the work, working with founders. When it comes to evaluating companies and ideas, you know, that is probably a somewhat different skill set. But, you know, I had those five years at the foundation to kind of look at what happened over time for people, what sort of things worked, what sort of things didn't. But the thing that I always tell people is that, like, I'm not the arbiter of truth. I'm not here to say, like, your idea is going to work and yours isn't. I'm just here to ask lots of questions about why it might or might not work or to give perspective of, hey, I've looked at a bunch of different things over the last 12 years and 
here's where I see them go awry. You know, earlier today I was talking to a young man who's working on a food delivery app and I was like, ooh, I've seen this a lot. <laughs> like, let's talk about why you're taking a stab at this. And, you know, he was he was very bright and, and knew like that there's a whole graveyard of these companies. Um, and I was even asking him about global macro stuff and like, well, how do you think this fits with the economy and where things, you know, know are headed and, and he had some great answers and, uh, and that's really what, you know, I mean, and tutoring is also about asking good questions. Actually, when I think about it, it's about leading someone, you know, somewhere that they're going. Um, so sometimes I think the work is actually very closely related, even though maybe on the surface, it seems very different. Definitely. What are some of your exciting uh, investments that came out of fifteen seventeen? Yeah, so our two most known investments with fifteen seventeen are Luminar, which uh, is an autonomous driving company. They are making sensors for Volvo. Um, they just came out with a new partnership with Mercedes-Benz. They just came out with another partnership with Nissan. Um, so... It's amazing to me to think that Austin started that company really as research inside of the Teal Fellowship when he was there, when he was, I think he started the fellowship when he was 18, not 17, and, um, you know, was there for two years and then started the company after completing his Teal Fellowship. And when Michael and I invested in that company, it was just five people working in a garage in Orange County, you know, and, and they're nearing close to a thousand employees at this point. And so it's been really amazing to watch everything grow. Um, you know, they IPO'd um, last year. So it was really extraordinary to get to just really see him lead all that and where things are going in the future. And I'm really excited most of all for a safer driving future. It's like, you know, driving fatalities um, are a huge problem and Luminar is going to reduce that. Um, and I'm a really terrible backseat driver, so I'm really excited for a, a future that is safer on the road. So that, that's one of our most well-known companies, and another is called Loom. It's an asynchronous video tool that lots of people know about these days, and during the pandemic, they really thought of themselves and still think of themselves as a public service. Um, you know, originally they started working a lot with engineers and designers and sort of work teams, but they've also gotten really big in the education sector, working with classrooms and teachers to deliver content and information. Um, and, uh, you know, and that company is sort of like a household name, you know, amongst, you know, tech geeks and stuff like that. So, so they're doing really well. Definitely, definitely. Loom has been used by everyone now, uh, especially yeah, in the tech it's scene. It's amazing to see it. I, I always remember when I first started seeing people send Looms around, I was like, wow. Like, it was kind of like when I, I went to a hackathon right before the pandemic. And at this hackathon, it was a, um, a hackathon for women who were getting into coding. And they were all using Figma there to do their designs. And I was like, oh my God, this is so crazy to be at this hackathon that is teaching and bringing people into the fold and they're using Dylan's tool. And it's just, it's always so interesting when you see, um, when you see product just out in the world and you just, and you know, you know where it came from. It's like Loom was started by, you know, three guys who we made the investment when they lived in an apartment in San Mateo and could barely afford burritos. Like it was, it was really rough going at the beginning and they figured it out. Right. That's crazy. Uh, I know yeah. you recently retweeted uh, a tweet by Bree, which said that uh, we still remember the time when people thought Figma had a very small market size, something similar to that. No, I know. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dylan's funny. Dylan talks about how he used his fellowship grant to get bunk beds for him and Evan, you know, the co-founder to have an apartment in San Francisco and live together and start the work on it. And so, uh, so yeah, we remember the very early days. What do you think about the role of venture capital in general capital in bringing such companies? Because do you think, uh, because you've been involved in this, you have been involved in seeing these 15, 20 year old kids doing great, building these big, huge companies that are impacting the world. So do you think if money wasn't, if they didn't have the money at that point of time, they won't be able to do it? What do you think about the role of venture capital in their lives and in general, like, you know, making these high impactful products? You know, I mean, I think, let's see, resources, resources are interesting because it's, it's all about how you use them and what the expectations are of utilizing those resources. And one thing I talk to young people about a lot is that as soon as you take venture money, venture expectations are now on you and what you're doing. Um, and it's almost hard to articulate. I think it's something that people viscerally feel. It's like with our fund, you know, we've raised a larger fund for fund three. We feel even more responsible than fund one now because there's more money on the line because there's more people who've come together to make something happen. And I think when people take venture money, there are more people saying, Hey, like we trust you and we want you to move forward with this. And it's a lot of responsibility. And again, it's, it becomes, you're stating, you know, to yourself and to the people you're working with, and maybe in some sense, like the, the outer territory, I'm building a venture scalable business. At least that's the goal, which is really audacious. It's like the Olympics of business. You know what I mean? It's like, exactly. it's hard to start any business, but this is like, okay, I'm telling everyone that I'm trying to go out to the furthest corner on this, which is very difficult and has certain timelines. It's like, if you take venture money, people expect you to raise almost every single year thereafter of like, oh, okay, you took angel money, when's your pre-seed, when's your seed, when's your seed two, when's your series A? Like, I mean, it's always about more and bigger and quicker and, and it's a lot. And so I talk to teams a lot about you want to be in the right space for taking money because as soon as you take it, it like a timeline hits. Um, and it's not even just a timeline from your own VCs. It's like at fifteen, seventeen, we're very patient with our companies. And we tell them, we've seen every up and down you can think of. We're extremely patient. We're not going to be texting you saying, where's the markup and where's this? But if it takes you a while to get to the next round, the next investor up will say, oh, well, why did it take you two years to get here? Like, why didn't you knock on my door last year? And it's like, oh, man, you just <laughs> like <laughs> you just can't win. Um, so the, the pressures are very real, um, you know, and when you take venture money, you are selling off part of your company. Um, and that's something that you have to keep in mind is like, it's, um, you know, it's obviously not free cash. So there's a, a bunch of things that are in play, but that said, you know, on the very positive side, I think venture money really allows people to do wild experiments. We always tell our founders, we want you to swing for the fences, like be like Tarzan, just go for it and uh, and try things. 
And if you burn through the cash and you find out that it didn't work, okay, cool, move on to the next thing. Like uh, in our purview, those experiments are worth doing. Otherwise we wouldn't bet on it. And if they are working out, then wow, how incredible. It's like we have one, um, one portfolio company right now that's working on a cure for diabetes. Now the, the team is only in mouse studies, you know, so it's not the end all be all, but they're making great progress. And if this works, wow, I can't even like fathom the impact that that makes. And even if it doesn't work to me, it's still worth backing this. I would never look back and say, oh, well, we shouldn't have backed that company. You know, we always think about decision-making is something in the moment, the outcome of a decision you have to untie from, um, making the decision. Cause you know, like I said earlier, like we don't get to predict the future and say, this is what's going to happen. So to us, it is wildly worth it to back things, especially that are important, even if they don't pan out, um, because it's important to know either way, what could or couldn't have happened. Um, and of course in the events where it does pan out, like our companies, Luminar and Loom, that's fantastic. I mean, that's what we're in the business of doing. Um, but that also means that we're in the business of taking lots of risks on things that aren't going to work. And that isn't necessarily even, um, the fault of the founder. We've had many founders build really, really interesting products, but it's just not the right time in the market. Um, you know, sometimes there are, you know, just macro changes that occur. I mean, COVID hit and we had a bunch of companies that needed to pivot. Um, we had other companies that said, okay, I think it's time to close shop now because this COVID thing is going to be too tough to go through. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why companies, um, you know, succeed or don't come to fruition. And it's way larger than any one person or any one team. Definitely. It's interesting that you say that, like, you know, when you raise capital, we want you to take risk. We want you to uh, go yep. for go for it. Just go for it. Because yep. I believe last year I was leading product at BridgeUp. BridgeUp is subscription-based financing. So that's not VC. That's not relative capital. So that's exactly what I would communicate with founders. And hey, guys, yeah. VC, go for VC if you want to take huge risk. If you are going for something that is like, you know, you're solving exactly curing cancer, curing diabetes. But if you just want quick capital right now without losing ownership, go for us. Yeah. So that's that's very yeah. really interesting how you put that. I'm, well, I'm curious. So you mentioned you just raised the capital. The pressure is on. Uh, fund three is coming up. What is your yeah. focus? What are the domains that you are going to focus on now? Sure. I mean, so our main thesis is to work with people who don't have a college degree. That's really big for us. And then secondarily, we also work with what we call renegade scientists. These are people who maybe they have a Ph.D., but they are doing sci-fi tech. So things that are really far out there. Um, for example, we have a quantum computing company in fund one. It was the last investment we did out of that fund. And we said, we got to do this. <laughs> we got to right. go crazy. Let's check this out. Um, so we are planning to do sort of more of those two thesis areas. And then we always say that we are pretty agnostic in terms of the types of things we back. Although, Traditionally, we've been a third B2B SaaS, a third hardware with a data play, and a third deep technology or like that sci-fi tech that I talked about. Um, one of the things that I'm noticing is that our companies that seem to do really, really well have something to do with infrastructure. It's like all these companies that send me a loom to show me what they're doing, I'm like, loom's an infrastructure play. <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, Luminar, for example, 
also infrastructure. It's like this is the underpinning of what makes autonomous driving go. And so oftentimes I am feeling myself looking at companies and, you know, the founders might, you know, will never say like, oh, I'm an infrastructure. Like they're not thinking that way. But what I'm kind of looking for is like, is what this person's building going to be an engine that is running under a bunch of other stuff? Um, and, uh, and that, that these days has gotten me really excited to think like, could this be a thing that is, um, making a whole industry work or is powering others to do what they're doing? Um, so yeah, that's always interesting to me. We are getting more increasingly interested in biotech. Um, you know, this investment that we've made, uh, in the therapeutic for diabetes is going very well. And so it's, it's made us open our eyes more to that. When we first started 15, 17, I think we used to say that we wouldn't do biotech because, oh, it's too early. It's too hard for a dropout to do biotech. Um, but especially having more capital, we are way more likely to say, hey, here's our first check of 400K at pre-seed. Okay, cool. This is going well and it's in biotech. Okay, let's follow on with another four or 500 right away because we want you to get to the point where what you're doing is indisputable and, you know, the science doesn't sort of like die in a funding gap. That would be, that, that is, it's always a shame when a company dies sort of because of a funding gap. Um, but we have more conviction now in things like biotech to say like, you know what, the risk uh, reward ratio is good enough here to say, okay, let's do it. Like, let's do more of this. So in the future, we would love to even have like a fourth fund with like spinoff funds of like, okay, we have 1517 biotech and 1517 space and all this. We don't have that yet. Um, but I think what we're looking at using fund three to do is sort of build towards that. Definitely. This is very interesting yeah. how you put uh, as an infrastructure play, because I know there was a point last year that I read that article that, hey, Amazon is not an e-commerce company. It's an infrastructure company. And that totally changes the way how you look at the business. Um, yep. But but yep. I want to get back to this where you mentioned that, hey, uh, building a business, building a VC business is the is sort of the business of Olympics or Olympics of business. And you yep. also talked about the downsides of VC that you have to constantly raise VC capital every single year and stuff like that. Recently, I'm getting someone on the podcast who is totally bootstrapped their way into 3 million ARR. So I'm curious how wow. you view bootstrapping because That's it's interesting to see from your side. I can't wait to hear that person's podcast because I want to send it to a bunch of people and be like, all right, this is how this person did it. Definitely. Um, <laughs> You know, I think bootstrapping is important and I, you know, the way that I think about any funding, whether it's bootstrapped funding or other funding is that that money is to do an experiment that you can't do otherwise. So sometimes in the past, not so much presently, I think founders have gotten more savvy, but in the past, sometimes I would have founders come into our office and say, okay, yeah, with this funding, we're going to, you know, hire a salesperson to do X, Y, and Z. And I'd be like, Hey, you have a phone. <laughs> And they'd be like, yeah, what do you mean? I'm like, you're the salesperson. Like, you're the one who needs to pick up and call 100 people and talk to them. And, like, that is the bootstrap. Like, that is, you got to do it yourself. And one of the things we've learned over time, too, especially on the sales side, is that founders are the closers for at least the first two, if not the first four years of company. And so sometimes we'd have people come in and they'd say they needed all this cash for things that we didn't think they were quite ready for. And it's like, okay, like you could do this or 
founders will come to me and say, well, we're going to build the first iteration of this product and it's going to cost this much in engineering to do it. And I'm like, okay, cool. It also sounds like you could be running this business on a spreadsheet and testing it out, you know, and seeing if it actually works. And, oh yeah, we haven't done that yet. Like, so that to me, bootstrapping is about what, what assumptions can you test before taking any other money? And that's true for any round. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're pre-seed, um, and you could do something during pre-seed, but you're, you're saying you're raising a seed to do it, that seed investor is going to say, why haven't you done that experiment yet? Like, Hey, you have enough money in the bank still. Why haven't you tried to increase, you know, your marketing spend, you know, or whatever it is. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's the way that I think about it. Um, in general, you're going to be bootstrapping at some point, whether it's like bootstrapping, like from the very beginning or even sort of bootstrapping within a round, I think with market dynamics changing right now. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of founders who are trying to figure out, okay, how do we get more lean with our burn and how do we extend ourselves over the next 18 months and, um, you know, make it through what, what might become a trying time. I don't know. Again, not here to predict the future. Hopefully not. Um, you know, but things might be rough for a little while. So it's got, it, you know, it's always good to think, um, in a financially sustainable way. Definitely. Daniel, this was a really interesting podcast. We dived into a bunch of rabbit holes, the education we side, all the, the, side, the theme yeah. fellowship. This was good. Yeah. This was good. I love that you were honest. You shared stories. You were not just talking in abstract words. Uh, but here's a question. Here's a very interesting question I have for you. Feel free to not answer uh, okay. if you're not comfortable. But I'm curious that when I was working for the startup uh, Bridgeup and we were the people who were handing out money, the dynamic mm -hmm. totally changes. Whenever you are the person who hands out money, everybody's coming to you. That's a very great way to be in a startup where everybody's coming to you rather than you going out to them. But that also sort of, like my question is, when you are the person handing out the money, everybody's coming to you. They all want money. They all are coming to you. How do you make good decisions by managing arrogance, by managing ego? How do you sure. not let these things seek in and how do you make good decisions? That's a really good question. Um, and I mean that in the most genuine way, you know, some people say, Oh, good question. I'm like, that wasn't a good question. <laughs> like, but that is an excellent, yeah. excellent question. Um, you know, one thing I would say is that at least on the investment side, when we're making an investment, we have often known the founders for sometimes months or years before making that investment. Um, and that gives us a lot of confidence in the team and, We've seen a lot of ups and downs and a lot of pre-seed is about the team and about the narrative. And when we've worked with people over time, it's like the worst case scenario is when someone comes in on a Wednesday and wants money on a Friday. I'm like, I can't get to know you in that time frame, and I can't see what you do with an up and a down. Whereas if I've known someone over the course of a year and at some point later in the year, they say, oh, I'm starting a company now. I still have all these data points beforehand of sort of what they were doing and you know, oh, I know they had a co-founder split on something else they worked on in the past. How did they navigate that? It's like having that information is really helpful. But I also kind of think that maybe one of your questions is like, if I'm hearing it right, is almost like, how does our team even stay humble? Because we're the ones who people come to and say, hey, will you like give us money and help us out? And I think the thing that, that I mean, one, it keeps us humble that we are not from like inside the industry. We didn't come from another fund to start a fund. 
we have this real mission in terms of what we're doing and we have a real deep respect for every single person who walks in the 1517 door no matter what we know they're trying their hardest it's like these people are putting their life and their money and their time and probably their friendships and their health like and everything on the line for what they're doing whether we back them or not and it's like we just want everybody to be treated with that sort of respect and reverence of wow you know what this person is out there trying to do really amazing things and even if i can't get conviction in becoming a capital partner in that i can still have like the human appreciation for them and what they're doing and i have the human appreciation for that my job is to be wrong a lot like i'm supposed to be right only once in a while and i'm supposed to be wrong a lot and it's very humbling and, and like i said earlier we've sometimes seen projects get shelved because there wasn't enough funding it wasn't the right time in the market and these people worked just blood sweat and tears all day every day and then something doesn't pan out the way you want um that keeps us really really humble so i think sometimes in vc the projected outside um narrative is like look how great everything is and like there are great things happening and going on um but there's also really hard things that happen as well like this week in particular um you know with markets being very volatile um you know mm. we've had some conversations with founders of like hey like again we don't know what's going on in the future we can't predict but we you know you have to be sensitive to that the macro environment is very touchy um, and that's going to have a big effect on your customers. It's going to have a big effect on your employees. I was talking to one of my team members today who, um, you know, she works with a lot of people where it's, um, it's, it's like, I don't know, I guess I would just say it's more like low skilled work. And I was like, Hey, listen, like you need to make sure that those people have sound employment for their jobs because that's really important because this isn't, yeah, tech stocks are going up and down and whatever, but like people who are invested in tech stocks are probably doing okay, like in general, um, yeah. you know, at least at like that base layer, but a person who is working, you know, a, a above minimum wage job, but you know, still not like a super hefty sort of salaried position, um, you know, those are the people that I think, um, you know, the founders really need to protect and say like, okay, like we're going to take care of our team and here's how we're going to do this. And um, all of those types of conversations, I think, keep us really, really humble. And it was funny, we, I was talking with this founder with another one of my colleagues and she's like, God, she's like, you guys are so different than everybody else. None of my other investors have asked me about the people who work on the floor. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I was like, because the thing is, is I only... I make money not when, you know, my companies eke out, you know, a little bit of profit. Our fund does well when we have a grand slam company. And so it's like, I'm not going to be nickel and diming, you know, companies right now. I just want to make sure that, you know, their, their teams are really solid while we're weathering something that might be very difficult. So, so yeah, I don't know. That's probably a very long winded way of saying like being able yeah. to see the 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 depth of the experience that people go through and the heart and the soul that they put into what they're doing keeps us really really humble with with what we do because um, it's really really hard work daniel this was good this was really good loved it i enjoyed it too this is really fun <laughs>